everybody. Welcome to episode seven of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. What's up, man? Hello, sir. We are in Trainer Road HQ again, recording Yay. a podcast. Pretty excited. Only one or two more times at this HQ. Yeah, not many more, because we will be moving buildings, and we're going to have a dedicated podcasting studio. Studio. Yep. So we're going to have sound damping. We're going to have the whole thing permanently set up because right now we actually move the equipment into our space and then we use that and then we have to put it back away. So it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. If you guys think we sound good now. Oh, just wait. It's going to be great. Like thunder and honey. It's going to be awesome. Our voices. Thunder and honey. Can you think of anything that would sound better than thunder and honey? Not offhand. Yeah, it's so pretty let's good, go with right? it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so, Mountain Bike Podcast, let's get into some of that stuff. But first, thank you for, we have a ton of new listeners, especially yes. this week. We've had a lot of people joining on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, we're glad to have you. Please share the podcast with your friends. Let them know about it. Um, and I may we may even do some sort of a giveaway if you guys share this podcast enough we may do something so stay tuned next week we might do something like that not used underwear though yeah we won't do that yeah, yeah certainly not or use chamois none of that no no use chamois that new would be stuff. disgusting yeah new stuff uh we will get into that but so stay tuned for that next week and if you have any ideas in a contest that you guys would like to see let us know and we can do it we're not fun. giving away free mercedes though we're not there yet. Nope. Not yet. Not yet. So, uh, but please leave us reviews. You can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Oh, actually, Google Play, you can't do reviews. But anywhere else, you can leave a review. If it's five stars, leave that thing. If it's not five stars, tell us first. We'll, we'll make some adjustments. We might bribe you. It might be illegal. I don't even know, but that'll happen. As long as we don't have to vote for anything. Yeah. I don't we'll, think it's, I think we can get bribes all we want. We're good. Yeah. And then uh, you can leave us a review. It's all awesome. So, Glad to have you guys. Uh, I'm, we're recording this on a Thursday night. I'm leaving tomorrow morning for Oakland for beautiful and and prestigious Oakland, California. Apologies to anybody in Oakland for the sarcasm there, but I'm going to the Oakland Supercross. Which should be fun. It'll be a good time, but it's supposed to rain all day. So? I'm just going to wear a poncho, but okay. it's going to be good. So Adam Cincerillo, friend of the podcast, good dude. He hooked it up with tickets. So thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. He didn't um, hook me up with tickets. He hooked no, you up with tickets. Yeah, and a couple friends. He was very kind. So different okay. friends. It's fine. It's <laughs> I'll just I'll just be here with Steve, my bum knee. Steven just oh I just eye rolled, and that's why. You you've got a messed up like so you hinted that you might have a messed up knee, right? Yep. You got the MRI. Got the MRI, did and the follow-up. What happened? Uh completely obliterated ACL minor meniscus tear on the medial side. So the inside front mm-hmm. lateral meniscus tear in the back. Um, Sorry, he thinks he's going to be able knee. to repair the medial meniscus. Okay. He's going to have to shave off the lateral meniscus. So your lateral collateral ligament is still intact, but LCL, lateral meniscus is messed up. No LCL ligament and MCL. The ligaments are fine. They gotcha. took some trauma. They've got, you know, some, issues some straining but they'll be fine no the meniscus itself though on the inside and outside both have damage that as, makes sense. as well as the fully torn acl well that's that's good well it's good in the <laughs> sense that now i get to take a piece of my hamstring ligament and make it into a way better than stock acl it'll be better than normal yeah yeah um so you're gonna have quite a lot of recovery from this one yeah i should be back on the bike before I end of May, early June. That's pretty quick. Yeah. I'll be on the trainer in a couple weeks after the surgery, which is already scheduled and we're doing it on February 15th. Nice. And just working your way in gently. 
Yep. This would be cool because I think we can cover how to recover cover how to recover from an injury like this, how to start riding and come back from it, because that's usually everybody's question how to do it. Yeah. Granted, this will be an N equals one type of a deal, like this is Steven's situation, but yeah. hopefully we can extract some principles you can learn from it. True. So it'll be pretty cool. Um, so yeah, bummer on the bum knee. It's okay. But uh, you're, that doesn't stop you from building your bike. You're still going to do that. So we're going to get into that in a bit. But first, your questions. A lot of you submitted them. You can do so at mountain bike uh, or, or mtbpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. You can submit your questions there. Um, you can share that website also with people, and it just shares it up nice and easy. But um, for a bunch of you that submitted your questions, we combed through them and shared uh, and picked the best ones. So uh, Stephen, not you, Stephen, but a different Stephen, he says, how advantageous is interval training versus just putting in a bunch of miles to a noob to mountain biking? Now, you're normally the trainer, but I'm going to answer this one. Please, go ahead. You need both. Mm, and why do you say that? You can't build good burst interval strength without a solid base. Mm. You build a solid base by putting in a bunch of miles. Somewhat. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Somewhat. I'm, gonna, I'm going to agree and disagree with that. Of course. And, and here's why. Because intervals, most of us associate intervals with just high-intensity stuff, and that's not the case. Like, an interval, by definition, is intensity prescribed at a duration. Yeah. So whatever that may be, it could be low-intensity for a long derivative. time. time derivative. Yeah. Now you're getting nerdy. <laughs> yeah. so, get out of school. Um, but really, it could be six hours in an extremely low-intensity. That could be one interval, right? True. And that's accomplishing the same purpose. The the one thing that I really want to cut out is you say just putting in a bunch of miles. Miles are 100% irrelevant and a terrible way to quantify what you're doing. It's effort. Yeah. And us mountain bikers should totally stand behind that because we do significantly less mileage than a roadie, yet many times what you're doing on a mountain bike is, you know, who knows, two, four, six times as hard. Of course. Is what a roadie's going to do because yeah. you're involving, you're going slower, up steeper terrain, more technical terrain, using more of your body, the whole thing. So it's kind of a different deal. So now, but the key, you say, to a noob to mountain biking, I see a lot of people think, well, I'm just new, so don't need to jump into intervals. I just need to get in used to the bike. Part of that is true because yes. you need to get used to riding the bike. Yeah. But it's also, you are absolutely not ruled out to starting interval training on day one of riding a bike. No, but you're also going to be on and off the throttle here and there. And totally. so you're, you're naturally on a mountain bike going to be doing intervals to a, Yeah. They just won't have structure, which <clears throat> the key to an interval workout isn't just you're working hard sometimes, then you're not working hard other times. The key is the fact that you are working hard for a specific time, resting for a specific time working for a specific time, that type of an order. The repetition. Yeah, and also defining how long and what intensity it is, not only for your work, but your rest. That's the key, especially for mountain biking. So Rest is almost more important than the interval itself. Yeah, in many cases it is, for us mountain bikers especially, because we're having to deal with, if you're doing cross-country racing or you're doing enduro racing or down really any style of mountain biking, you usually are dealing with hard efforts that are going to come up in close proximity to each other. Yes. Which means that it's key to develop your ability to recover quickly and then put that power out again. So with that, if you just rest until you feel ready to go again, you are not building up your, really the science behind it is going into aerobic power, but you're not building up your ability to dole out efforts at a high intensity back to back. Yes. You're just at that point working on your ability to put out high power, right? So if you think about it, high intensity intervals gapped out with plenty of time to recover, that's when you are working on raising your ability to output power. 
If you're doing high intensity intervals that are just really close together, that's when you're working on your ability, not necessarily to hit really high numbers, but you're working on your ability to make it repeatable. Yes. To speed up the recovery time. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. So, so yeah, uh, interval training is just as advantageous, if not more advantageous in many cases, or I shouldn't say more advantageous, but you might see a bigger jump. Uh, for a newbie because you have a lot of room to improve yeah. versus somebody that's really experienced. But everybody experiences the same benefit to interval training. But like Steven said, going back in the beginning, you need a bit of both because you also need to get out on the bike and enjoy it and get used to it and build skill and everything else. Absolutely. So we went into that one a little deeper than I thought. It's okay. Darren, he says, I'm six foot three inches, uh, 210 pounds, and I have a Yeti 4.5 and an ARC. And he says, I love the 4.5. He's a good man, and anybody keeping track, he should drink probably twice because he has two bikes, two Yetis there. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he says, I'm thinking about swapping the ARC for an ASR uh, to use for XC racing. A little bit easier on the back, he says. Your thoughts. I, Steven, what do you think on this first? I, I, for the most part, other than courses like Sea Otter, I don't see a reason why a hardtail is more advantageous to 90% of the riders out there. Right, and I think even three years ago, that was maybe a different story. Of course. But suspension, like we talked about this before, and the, even just the past two years, yeah. it's made such a huge leap in, in how it performs when we're talking about giving you a firm pedaling platform, but at the same time also giving you the plushness you need. Yeah. That I really find it hard to justify getting a hardtail. Yeah. Yep. I, I think, so coming from, I didn't have an ARC before my ASR, but I had a stump jumper hardtail. Yeah. And the thing was feather light, really good build. Yeah. And I went over to the ASR. And I know that everybody says this when they go to a new bike, but I was faster on the climbs. Yeah. I was much faster on the descents. Of course. And uh, above all, I felt much more comfortable and less fatigued yeah. on the bike. There are benefits to be said for having a hardtail. Of course. It, it really forces you, if you're the type of person that just bludgeons your way through a line instead of picking your line, it's going to force you to pick a line. Yes. And it also teaches a lot of, um, you know, management or manipulation with your body on the bike. Of course. But, man, if you've got that down, which you've already had a hardtail for a while, I don't, I'd totally recommend yeah. the ASR. What or I, a full... And, Distract or separating this from Yeti, I would recommend for XC racing a full suspension XC bike. Yes. I and what he should better. do, in my opinion, what he should do with the ARC is put a Fox 34 fork on it, set mm. it to 130 millimeters, and have a trail hardtail. That'd be pretty fun. That's I built two of those now for yeah. customers, and they love them. Because there's something to be said also about like there's zero loss in the rear suspension. I know I've mentioned this before, but all the energy you put down into the bike isn't lost in that suspension stroke. Well, of course. It's so much fun, right? Yeah, but then they're, even just going efficiency aside, there's something fun in building skill on a hardtail that's capable of riding the same terrain that you normally ride your full suspension on. Yep. So I really enjoy the idea of a trail slash all mountain hardtail mm-hmm. for that main reason. Yep. Not for going and racing. Yeah. And Mostly actually, for building skill. You know, in, in modern hardtails, carbon ones specifically, they have a lot of compliance built into yes. the rear end. Well, and so do the Cannondale aluminum hardtails. Yes, true. Because yep. of the CAD technology. 
They're good at doing that. They're very good at that. But yep. yes, so there's a lot of compliance built in. So you almost have the micro suspension exactly. on most hardtails. Look at my Super X cross bike. That thing's got amazing micro suspension in the rear. Yeah. That thing is so compliant. Makes it's me, so stiff laterally. Yeah. It makes me think that like if you, when a lot of people think like, what's the difference between just using Specialized for an example, the hard rock or a lower end one and the stump jumper hardtail, like it still a hardtail, but one's way more expensive. Engineering of the material. It makes a huge difference because on those traditional hardtails, you're going to get bucked around and bounced around hard. But on a nicer build, it could be aluminum if it's really specifically, you know, a a good one, or it could be a a carbon one. They can engineer really intelligent flex into the chassis and it makes for a really good ride. Absolutely. So, but still for XC racing, just I totally recommend get an it. ASR. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Now or it's going to be suspension. very close to his four point five, though. That's the thing. Yeah, that's that's one point. Like, um, so I'll be building up an enduro bike this year. Yeah. And I love. So I mean, I look at Nate Hill's videos on his four point five, and he seems plenty capable of doing nearly everything on a four point five. Of course. But that's also Nate Hill's. Yeah. Um, but I look at that compared to my ASR. They're pretty close. They're so very in, close. In your case, Darren, I'm going to go ahead and give you permission. You can sell both bikes, and you can get an ASR and a 5.5. Five, five, five. Five. Yeah. Good and then call. you'll have like a much wider spread there. I so agree. I think we may just made Darren's day. And a lot of people just got really drunk. Yeah. We mentioned that a lot. We said Yeti a lot. Yeah, we did. We apologize for that. But basically what we're saying is that if you're going to have a 120 mil or XC bike with 120 up front, 100 in the rear, which is getting more and more common instead of 100 up front. Yeah. If you're going to have that, and then you're going to have uh, another bike that has 140 in the front or 130, depending on what you spec it with, with 114 in the rear, you're pretty close. You're kind of blurring the lines a lot. Yeah, you get, two... the Venn diagram is looking more like one circle rather than two separate ones, right? All right, and uh, English guy. Sorry, yeah. So I would separate that yeah. as much as you can is the point. Um, kind of yeah. ex- explore the space, if you know what I mean, from yeah. SNL. So Absolutely. Um, so he says, also, if you could touch on replenishment drinks and food for the longer, or for on the bike for longer XC rides. Uh, he says, 20 to 100 mile rides most of the time, just have water in my pack and some sort of bar. I think I'm lacking on nutrition. Okay. I mean, if he's doing a 100 mile ride and just on water in a bar, I would say so. Well, he's definitely, my, my big thing that I think of is, is salt and sodium depletion. That's my first thing. Mm-hmm. So the big thing I do on longer rides is I will take uh, pink Himalayan sea salt. Okay. And put a little bit into that my water. very exotic. It's very exotic. A yeah. lot of people are starting to do it, though. It helps with cramping, keeps your sodium, you know, in that your seems body. seems like something you'd put in a bath. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's very um, elegant. So I throw that in the, in the Camelback just a huh. little bit. You barely even taste it. Most of the time, you don't taste it at all. Interesting. And that helps a lot with, you know, your hydrating and... Right. You're not depleting sodium like you typically do through sweating. And there are a bunch of people that use different products for this type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, they're endless There's products. There's so many products. Um, I So I personally have a very fragile stomach. It sucks. I hate it. But I do not have an iron gut. And the only thing that I have found that helps my stomach is scratch labs. Okay. And here's the reason, but one thing I have noticed, it's not as good at helping me with hydration issues as others, but it doesn't screw up my stomach and give me GI distress. And a lot of them will. Yeah. So I'll take the fact that it doesn't do quite as much on the nutrition side, as long as it doesn't screw up my stomach. Yeah. Because if it screws up my stomach, who cares how hydrated I am? I've screwed up my ride. Yeah. And I may have like lost a sock on the trail, if you know what I mean. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, so that's really bad. But, um, so in this case, I just use scratch lab stuff. Um, 
in terms of actually making sure I'm staying hydrated on the bike. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I do is I mix, if I have two bottles on my bike, yeah. I will mix, I'll have one bottle with just water and okay. then one bottle that's mixed. And okay. I usually go a little less than what they recommend in terms of the potency of the mix. If they say, you know, one packet, I might do three quarters of a packet. And that's just because once again, I found that with my stomach that works best. Okay. But I always like to have a bottle that doesn't have mix just because sometimes you really just need water. Well, of course. You know, like you just, it's a, it's a thing with a, maybe the mind more than anything else. But yeah. I like having that. In terms of food, for what I take in on the rides, once again, fragile stomach. I can't do goos or anything else like that. They will mess up my stomach. Bad. Nature's Bakery Fig Bars. That's what works for you? So yeah. they're, they're a local company out they of are. Carson City. Really cool. Sam Marson, good homie of mine. Yeah, and I wish I could eat them on a bike, but I can't. Really? That's yeah. the one solid food that I can eat. Yep. And not have it mess with my stomach. And I don't have any type of gluten intolerance or anything else, but um, the uh, but the gluten-free ones don't seem to mess me up quite as much, but that's probably because there's just a totally different, uh, if you look at the ingredients that go into actually making the, the fig bar, yeah. they're very different with the gluten-free ones. Of course. So there's something in there that screws me up a bit. Okay. Um, so what I actually use is, once again, this sounds like a Scratch Labs ad, but they have a book. Uh, a couple books. They have the, the I think it's called the Scratch Table. That's like meals that you can prepare. Yeah. They have portables, and then they have like another cookbook. But I use the portables cookbook, and you can get it on Amazon everywhere else, at bike shops too. It is awesome. And you can make any number of things that you can take, but I make little rice cakes. Okay. And my favorite one, it uses chicken apple sausage. It uses a little bit of ginger and brown sugar. Okay. And I think a little bit of soy sauce. Okay. And then you have white rice and uh, egg. And you it's really easy to make because you just make rice in a rice cooker. That's really easy. You scramble up some eggs. That's really easy too. And then you throw in some chunks of sausage into a pan. They cook a little bit. You're dialed. And then after that, you just mix a few things in. You compact them up. So they stay together and they don't fall apart when you try to eat them. Yeah. And then I buy some stuff off of Amazon that's um, foil that on one side is like parchment paper. On the other side is foil. Okay. And you just fold them up so that you just keep them in your back pocket, pull them out. It's real food, mm -hmm. which is great. And it's simple stuff. So it doesn't screw up my stomach. And it's got this good mix between savory and sweet. So I never feel like, gosh, I'm so sick of sugar. Okay. Because that happens if you have goo and everything else yeah. and just that all day. Um, I'm sick of it. So. I'm going to throw one more thing out there. Mm. I started this about a year and a half two years ago. And actually my friend, Brian Butler, um, mm. who's, he races enduro with me. He's super good athlete. He, very good athlete. And he is the, he knows everything. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, and he's kind of eccentric in many ways when it comes to nutrition. Yeah. But the one thing he turned me on to, and I kind of took the ball and made it, you know, my own thing. I make my own trail mix. Mm, yeah. But I use pine nuts. Interesting. Walnuts, almonds, cashews, pumpkin wow, seeds. Wow. And then I just go to, uh, to uh, like Whole Foods or sometimes Costco has really big bags of just dried mango. Nice. Nothing, no sugar in it, no nothing, just dried mango. Yep. And you cut it up into little pieces. I make it by the gallon bag. And then I literally take the little miniature, uh, the snack Ziploc baggie. Yep. That's good for an eight hours worth of riding. Yep. And I probably don't even finish that. You get the healthy fat for energy for long term mm -hmm. and you get the little bit of sugar for that instant boost. Yep. And it's real food again. It's not processed. It takes five minutes to make 
a gallon of it. Right. You're just throwing a bunch of stuff together. It's pretty quick. It's super quick and super simple. And I mean, what do you say from a nutritional standpoint? How yeah. does that sound for ride food? A lot of nuts can cause people, cause issues for people. Okay. Uh, but that's because they can be hard to break down for your stomach a lot of the time. Okay. That said, one thing that nuts have going for them is a lot of fat. A lot and of when healthy you're on, fat. Yeah. And when you're on the bike... You need fat, you need carbs, those type of things to keep going. Uh, you really, you don't need protein when you're riding on the bike. That's not necessary. You don't need a lot of things that I think a lot of people think you do. So it keeps it pretty simple and uh, it can be good as long as your stomach can handle it. Fair. Like peanuts are noted for being difficult to break down for yeah. a lot of people. So peanuts usually aren't like a great bet. And I never put peanuts but in But the ones mind. that you mentioned are probably not a bad bet or bad, bad choice at all. So, you know, one, we, I say we like dedicate an episode to nutrition in the future. We should. And we'll go over a lot of different things. And, and really the only thing I will say is that if you really want to get granular about your nutrition, the first thing you have to do is get a power meter. And as unrelated as that seems, we'll get into it at another point, yeah. but that is honestly the first step is a power meter for that. So, uh, Peter's question, he says, what's the best bike for long distance races such as Leadville 100 or silver rush 50. I'm signed up for the Leadville 100 stage race in silver rush 50. I currently have a Santa Cruz high tower with 27, five plus tires. I really like the tall boy 29er, but I'm not sure if that would be a good choice. Thanks, Peter. Short travel, ridiculously light built tall boy. Sure. Yeah. It's not the best though. It's still a VPP bike. So it's still mm -hmm. on power line climb on a few of the big you can climbs. Get that kickback. You're going to get a lot of kickback. Um, and by kickback, we mean when you're pedaling and you're going to feel a lot of vertical oscillation there up and down. Actually, you know, when you sitting on the bike, you're going to get pedal bob. Yeah. That happens with VPP. Of course. So I really think that that, I mean, you can chime in obviously as well, but I think the shortest travel full suspension 29er you can think of. Yep. With at least somewhat of a slack head tube. You don't want an old scalpel, mm. not that steep of a head tube, but something like that. Like, yeah. an, you know, an Epic or stump isn't. Yeah, an Epic is pretty. An Epic is not bad. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not a, bad. A Trek top steep. fuel. Yeah. Um, an Epic would be actually. I, I take that <clears throat> back and say not bad. An Epic is really good for Leadville. Yeah, because and that's a fire road race. That's what it is. It's what it's, it is. A cross bike would be great yes. for Leadville, but they don't allow drop bars. Yeah. So uh, I think that um, Leadville is unique in the sense that if you have a hardtail, this is one uh, spot where you can feel like you have a good tool for that job. The one thing about that, distance. though, is it's a long time on the bike. For a hardtail. And that's going to start to put some a lot of stress on your core and on your joints and everything else at the end of the day. I built a, a couple bikes for Leadville uh, people last year, and both of them were ASRs. Yep. They're good. And I think that that's the one thing. If you can have an efficient pedaling full suspension bike, you're good. Yeah. And that's also a day, by the way, where you can make some adjustments to your suspension yeah. And you can set it up so that there is a little more, more pressure in there or there is more rebound damping or whatever else you want to have to, to kind of calm the bike down when you're pedaling if you have any issues with that. Because yeah. let's be honest, even power line is not like a single track descent. We're dealing with a fire road that gets ruttered out. Well, right? of course. So but still, it's, it's, it's a hundred mile race at the end of the day. That's really day. where... That's where I'm, the full suspension yeah. helps. It really does. So that's, yeah, I mean, 
I don't definitely don't think that you would want to want to run 27.5 plus tires on that day. You want a bike that's light and 27.5 plus probably going to be some chubby rubber on there. That's going to be pretty heavy. Yeah. I'd, I I so, would do a 29 er with like some like WTV nano 40 2.1 or 2.1s at the most. Yep. So the I nano 40 C is a 1.85. Yep. Solid choice. Yep. Um, I would not be surprised. So Todd Wells doesn't ride for specialized anymore, Yeah, but they used to go all out on his bike for this race. And like, I mean, he used road pedals and road shoes because it was more aerodynamic. Well, yeah. And he, they did everything for more aero. Right. Yeah. And it makes sense on that race. You can save serious time with aerodynamic. That's how you're going to get sub seven hours. Yep. Exactly. Sub seven. Sub seven is absolutely the case. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's like the fast. I think the fastest time is somewhere around six now, which is crazy. Um, that's a, Crazy day. I think it's actually sub six even. Jeez. Uh, geez. Yeah. Right around there. But so, um, but the thing about that I'm getting at there is I wouldn't even be surprised. And I don't know if this is allowed, but I would not be surprised to see somebody racing on some deep section arrow wheels if they can at some point, because it c- could be very, it would be a huge benefit for you on that course. So, um, at some point it would be great. I mean, Todd Wells even raced on like 1.9s, uh, like super narrow tires and they were practically slicks. Just think of, just think of, like I said, a zip 404s mm-hmm. in tubeless. Yep. A set of EC 90, 55 deep, you know, yep. NV 4.5s, um, anything the like SES that. The SES 4.5s, yeah, that exactly. That would be an awesome setup, yeah. you With, know. And you can run a 40C tire. You can run a 42C. You can run something that narrow as long as it's a knobby tire. Go. Have Good. fun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what, if you really, and in fact, I'm going to Leadville this year. I'm not racing it. They're supporting. Yeah. Unless I qualify, but the, so it's a weird situation where our CEO got in at trainer road, Nate Pearson, he got into Leadville, uh, through the lottery. I did not, our head coach did not. Um, but we, all three of us, we still want to go to support Nate that he's racing it, but we're going to do the qualifier for the Tahoe trail 100. That's two or that's one week before national championships for me and doing a 100 K mountain bike race is not ideal preparation for, uh, you know, a 90 minute XC race. that's going to go on back East. Like it's going to be fire roads in the West bone dry and dusty versus slick and rocky and slow. Right. But that said, I'm still going to do that event and I'm just going to ride it however I wish to ride it. Mm-hmm. Um, and however I need to, to prepare best for the race coming up, okay. not pushing too far in other words. And if I qualify, I'll race. If I don't qualify, don't care. I'll still be there. So we'll have some really cool insights and I think Nate's going to get super granular on, on how to set up his bike for this race. So cool. we'll have some cool insights. Uh, Slavash, I think that's how you say your name. It says hi and thanks for the great podcast. Loving it. I even listened to some of the ep- or I even listened to the episodes a few times. Nice, nice, good stuff. Thanks, Slavash. Yeah, here are a few of my questions. Would be great to hear your thoughts about them. Number one, what are your thoughts about Trainer Road's predefined plans to prepare for an enduro race? We actually, um, Amy Morrison will be going through and using trainer. Amy Morrison was a guest that we had on the podcast. If you don't know pro enduro racer. Yep. Go back and listen to that podcast. She's got some big goals this year and she is using trainer roads plans to prepare for that. And I guarantee you she will have her, her best year yet in terms of fitness. Zero question. 
Um, the best way to prepare for that is in enduro racing, you're dealing with like what we were talking about before, really hard efforts that need to come back to back. You aren't going to have recovery time in between that because when you're descending on a technical course, you are not doing proper recovery. You're, you're working at a very high level still. You're working at a lower high level. Exactly right. <laughs> so you're going to need to be able to put out hard efforts, recover at a high level of intensity, and then more hard efforts the whole time. So here's the quick answer to that. Um, if you follow the sweet spot base plan, short power build plan, and then you go into the gravity plan, which for gravity mountain bike racing, those three things that'll take you through 28 weeks of training and you will be so fast after that. But the principles that I talked about earlier about working on, you know, your ability to be able to put out efforts back to back, those plans really focus on that. Perfect. That's how to hit that one. Um, and you will be best following a plan with precision. Uh, Slavosh kind of had a question about like adding in some workouts that he had found separately. You'll have better luck following a plan with precision because those workouts are contextually designed. In other words, Monday's workout is designed in relation to Tuesday's workout and also in relation to the workout before it, rather than just throwing things in there randomly. They all play off each other. Exactly right. Uh, Number two, uh, or number three, he says, in an earlier episode, you did speak about the DW link and how it doesn't feel that it supports in the midstroke. I'm riding an Ibis Mojo HD3 with a DB inline shock. Can you explain how to set up my shock to get better at the midstroke support? Get nerdy, please. What would you say, Steven? My problem is the HD3 does not do well with a DB inline. I was just going to say it's a weird match. It's a very weird weird match. You need more air volume. You need more oil volume. You need an actual double barrel air, Mm -hmm. or you need to go to like a float X or float X two or something like that. Right. Monarch, uh, RCT three. Yeah. So yeah. So you need to go to one of the bigger piggyback shocks, not an inline on an HD three. Yep. Um, with that, as far as your your midstroker uh, support, you're going to be talking low speed compression. Yep, dialing that up considerably yes. is the big thing. So you can do that on your DB inline. The only difference is with that, you're going to heat your shock up more, and which is going to lead to fade. Which is going to lead to a lot of fade, and it's going to lead to uh, like when I used to have a float uh, float CTD with the big negative chamber on it on yep. my SB66 carbon at the bottom of one enduro segment. I reached down, felt my rear shock, couldn't touch it. It was that hot. Sheesh. And I had no rear suspension. It gets to a point where it will lock up. I yeah. don't know if the DB inline will do that, but at the same time, you're you're removing the shock's ability to do its job by not being uh, sufficient enough rear shock. And that's what we mean by fade. Um, when the shock does experience more heat, you're dealing with more pressure buildup within the shock. Yeah. You're dealing with the oil also is going to pass through the valving differently when it has that much heat in there. Um, valves or sorry, not valves, but seals and everything else. And springs, swell, and everything springs, inside. everything gets affected and yep. no shock is immune from heat. And that's why coil shocks exist in the downhill world. That's why air is typically not used Yep. Typically, typically in in downhill, yep. because it's impervious to that. I remember even Aaron Gwynn saying because he was running the air shock. He was on running the float X two on in, his demo eight on the demo eight. Yeah, and he was even saying that the reason or the way they had the bike set up was for the latter third of the course. 
Of course, and the pedally was, third of the course, yep. where he's fastest. Yep, and he was setting it up that so that the suspension would operate well that way, which means that earlier on, I bet his bike was super soft in the beginning, yeah. but then as he progressed later on and the shock heated up, it was it wasn't he tuned it so that it wasn't getting to the point where it was so stiff that he was losing ability to handle the bike. Absolutely. So yeah, more volume. Yep. You need great. more volume of air and oil. So the DBN line is the wrong shock. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Cameron, he says, Hey guys, I'm pretty new to the mountain bike game as well as a new listener. I'm in the process of building a Surly KM with front suspension. And that's kind of like a jack of all trades bike. Yeah. So the Karate Monkey is a very jack of all trades, uh, 27.5 plus 29, comes with a rigid fork. You can build it with, uh, I think up to a 120 fork. Um, it takes all axle standards. It's, it's a ridiculous bike. It's a very, very much a Swiss army knife. Yep. Absolutely. And he's asking, he says, being from rural East central Indiana, most of the trails here are pretty tame. So I went with a hardtail for my first build. I'm a pretty tall guy at about six, five. I wondered if after the build, it might be worth getting a dropper post. Yes. I, yeah, exactly. I bought a cheap track, uh, to get into the sport last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is my first real trail bike. Just wondering how much of a difference this will make as I haven't ridden a dropper before. Thanks and keep up the good work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially at 6'5", I think he's going to have more of an issue because he's going to be talking an extra large frame. And that's one of the cool things that Surly does, by the way, for most of our listeners, is their bikes, they have one because they're steel and easy to manufacture. They actually offer bikes for people that big. Not a lot of brands do. No. And even if they do offer them, good luck finding them. Yeah, exactly. So, but with that said, yes, I think you're definitely going to be, um, at your height and on that bike, you're going to take advantage of a dropper post for sure. Totally. I have a dropper post on my cyclocross bike. Stephen would, if his Cannondale didn't have a very strange size. It's not strange. It's just really small. Very small. Yeah. It's 25.4. I think it's the only cross bike that I can think of with that size though. Yeah. So it's strange. It's okay. Yeah. Fair. It's strange. Um, but yeah, otherwise you would have a dropper. On I would have a dropper bike. on my cross bike. Yeah. yeah. I have one on my Crux. It's awesome. It's the way to go. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. That's what I would do. Um, let's, um, let's move on to the news this week. Uh, we have a bunch of things to cover and then we got to get into the, to the meat of what we're talking about today. Yes. Um, which is going to be all about our, uh, how we build a bike, which will be interesting and how you guys build bikes too. Um, but first Bible of bike, uh, the bike mag Bible of bike tests, a bunch of new stuff is coming out. By the way, you can go to their YouTube channel and subscribe. I totally recommend doing that. It's from bike mag. So bike magazine, if you look that up, you can find it there. They've been testing a bunch of bikes They have, and these reviews we talked about it last week are so awesome because it's three different people that give their opinions on the bike. Yeah. This isn't them talking about stats and just giving you stats. They'll talk about the stats. Then they'll tell you what they liked or disliked about it and how it performed, where it performed well, where it didn't perform well. It's pretty much how you and I totally. approach bikes. Absolutely. Which is, is great. Yeah. Of course. Let's pat ourselves on yeah. the back. It's We're fantastic. amazing. <laughs> so they did the Trek slash 29 this week. They did. And we've talked Thoughts. about in the previous podcast that. It looks like a Trek session. If you're a pink bike well, uh, yeah. person, then you get that joke. But yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that um, I have a secret love for that bike. Yeah. Like, I kind of want one. <laughs> it's pretty sweet, man. Yeah. And this bike, they absolutely loved. Um, they commented on its ability to... They are talking about the climbing, the descending, but they talked about how stiff the thing was. Yeah. And they credited that a lot of that to the massive down tube that yes. that bike has. That's the big thing that Trek is really focused on their frame technology is getting the down tube 
to basically be the, the backbone for the bike. And Which, instead of having like a swoopy down tube, like a giant, for example, has a very curvy giant down tube. Yeah. Their down tube is kind of just straight now. Yep. It's it's and that gives it a lot of strength. Yes. So um the only thing is it puts it in the way of the fork and thus they had to design that new bumper. The bumper. Yeah. It's a it's in the headset. It's pretty cool. Limits yeah. the turning of the bike. But then that also makes it so that when you do inevitably crash, your bars don't go spinning around and you rip your le- reverb lever. I think everybody should have it. It. It, it's a, it's an ingenious little fix. Yep to get the geometry of the bike and the down tube structure correct. And I, I, I applaud Trek for that. Yep. Specialized has something similar on their women's bikes. They have yeah. bumpers. Yep. Um, it was just because fitting in like on their 29 inch bikes, because yeah. fitting that in the crown is going to hit the down tube of the course. way that they do it. So, yep. um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. The pivot firebird. Yes. This was interesting. So the firebird is the, it, correct me if I'm wrong. That's the one with a lot more travel to it. Yes. Yeah. We're talking a lot more. Yeah. That, that's, it's basically the big brother to the switchblade. Yep. And they, they also reviewed the switchblade, yeah. which they liked. They loved that bike actually. Yeah. They thought it was awesome. Everybody loves the switchblade. Everyone so far. does. Yeah. I've got a friend that I've been trying to talk him into, into a five, five and he's like back and forth on switchblades, man. Yeah. Like he, he wants a switchblade. That they're over a Yeti. He's a, he's a, he's drunk, but that's okay. It's okay. Um, but his, uh, the, the thing that the, they say the switchblade does super well, they say that that bike holds its line through chunder and everything else so incredibly well. Okay. And that's something that, that I think really comes down to, I mean, that's a mix of a lot of different things. You're talking about the wheels, you're talking about a lot of different things, but that's a pretty impressive thing with that bike. And they call it the switchblade switch because I believe it's got the flip chip type of stuff in there. Yeah. But and it also, it's, I think it does, um, 27, five plus 29, all yes. that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So it's the, it's the Swiss army knife of bikes, but the firebird is the gnarly version. It's like the, I think it's 160, 170, 170. It's the big boy bike. Yeah. And yeah. it's it looks, 170, 29er. It looks long when you look at it, the picture it's, I mean, it really does. It looks like a Trek session. It does. It looks like a Imagine session. Imagine that. Yeah. Um, that thing is an absolute beast. Um, they provide some <clears throat> cool information there. They wrote The Reckoning. Yes. Um, which they liked a lot. The, you know, the, the interesting thing about The Reckoning, though, is I've heard a lot of people talk about the pedaling performance. Well, that's the one downside of that bike. With, yeah, not a whole lot of compliments. No. Yeah. I mean, when your main, I guess... The biggest downfall of the reckoning is the nomad almost climbs as good as it. Yeah. And that's never good. No. So yeah. it but it descends just a beast. Really well. Yeah. And that's why I I personally, and this is just a shout out to Evil Bikes, I kind of want to build a following this It'd year. It'd be sweet. After I do my five five, of course. Yeah. But I kind of want to ride one long term. They're so cool looking. Yeah. They're awesome. Not many people ride evils up here, so we need to get our hands on one and play with them. Evil, if you're listening, it'll be fun. What do you mean if? Yeah, that's true. We know. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. Uh, Evil, we want to build up a dream build. It'll be pretty rad. Um, Anyways, uh, Canyon prepares for the U.S. launch. For the 14th time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think it's only been two or three. Yeah. Or four. uh, I don't know. Four, probably. Canyon Bikes, if you don't know, they're a company from Germany. Germany. And they've been direct to consumer and that's their model and they're bringing them to the U S they're still going to be direct to consumer, but it also sounds like they're going to sell through dealers as well. Um, I'm not sure on that, but that's kind of what it sounds like. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting model for sure. How they're going to work this to keep it, uh, you know, normally all of 
Canyons bikes get built overseas and then super prepped and assembled in Germany. Yep. Well, it seems like they're going to move their prep work to 90% finished product overseas, and then they're going to ship it to the U.S., yep. and then they'll do the perfect dial-in. And that's the beauty. Canyon uh, is one of those brands that they're very meticulous Yes. When you're when you're direct to consumer, you have to be good at your assembly, good at cable management, good at getting everything perfect, so that the end user literally just has to straighten the handlebars, put the front wheel on, and, and go ride. Good. And that's what Canyon's been good at, and they're trying to retain that. And I think that's the biggest logistical you know nightmare that they've had to deal with. Yep. it's not so much the money side of it. The you know the that's the logistics issue. I think was maintaining their ability to send a bike that's ready to ride and in perfect working order in 15 minutes. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It'll be interesting to see. They make some really good bikes. I've I've lusted over their road bikes for a while. Their road bikes do look very just pretty. so good. They're, they're yeah. simple, clean lines, you yep. know. It's nothing too swoopy or Something crazy. about the chainstay seat tube, top tube it's junction. Really good. I love those bikes. Yeah, yeah. they're really good. So, for road bikes. Road bikes are stupid, though. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, we'll talk about that in a future episode. We're prepping <laughs> that. That'll be good. Um, but uh, the one thing that's also cool about this, they're moving their headquarters to Southern California and they mentioned that they are looking to bring on people for that, uh, hire. Go to job with Canyon. And you can go to Canyon's website and you can look at careers, I think, and you can see if they have anything there. Cause I know that we have a lot of listeners from the SoCal area, so you can check that out. A lot of. Yes. Uh, BC bike race announced their BC bike ride event, which so many people want to do multi-day stage races, but not actually race. Exactly. So this is awesome, actually. This They're is really giving fun. the people what they want. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. And uh, the BC bike race covers some of the most awesome terrain out there, which is pretty cool. Six days, 14 trail networks. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's yeah. amazing. And uh, yeah, I think that these type of races are honestly, like we've talked about Epic Rides and other doing yeah. A great job with these one day events that really end up making up a whole weekend. Yeah. But it's really like just one main course, then they'll have like a, a, a fat tire crit. Of course. I think that this is the other area where XC racing is alive and well and doing really well. Of course. Are these multi day stage races that are really set up in cool places. Like um, the other podcast I host, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. Yeah. Uh, the Wait, head- you host another podcast? I do. Oh. It's it's presented by Trainer Road. Oh, yeah, imagine we that. We're checking that box off. They're letting us use their microphones, so we, we give them free plugs. But the um the head guy of Beast or of Trans Rockies, which is actually now called Single Track Six, he listens to that podcast and he invited us up there. Again. So I, he didn't invite me. Yeah, he invited you true, and me. your coworkers yeah. at Trainer Road. So I which is pretty rad. So yeah. no, I, totally cool. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna go do that race, which will be awesome. It's similar in many ways to the BC bike race, but I've heard that it's gnarlier in terms of the terrain you're doing. Of course. So, which is going to be pretty cool. I'm, I'm so stoked. It's going to be more like trans Cascadia or, um, like even the Breck Epic, I would say. Yep. Yeah. And (sighs) I've heard it's even, it's the terrain is more gnarly than Breck Epic. Of course. Breck Epic though is all super high elevation and just like brutal stages too. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but all those, all those events, Breck Epic, BC bike race, uh, single track six, um, yeah, all of those style events are so cool. Uh, I'm even hoping to go t- and do one in Cuba next year. So it's called the Titan Tropic of Cuba, hmm. which is like the, the, that's like the most, uh, forgive the use of the word epic, but that's probably the most epic name of a race I've ever heard. The Titan Tropic. Yeah. It's pretty intense. I like it. Yeah. it's pretty cool. 
So that covers it for the news uh, this week, pretty much. There's not really much else going on. There's some signings, some other things like that, but that's pretty much it. We want to talk about us. Let's do it. Uh, we're building, well, we are going to be, I'm going to be building up two bikes. Well, th- two and a half, because I'm going to be replacing my uh, my frame. I'm going to be upgrading it to the new uh, The new, new ASR Turk series. Turk series, which is going to be pretty cool. But this one's going to be all about your bike because, Stephen, you just sold your 5.5 like we talked about last week, and you're building one up. So we asked a few of you to talk about how you built up the bikes, and here's the tally that I have. We have, it's overall, we have 75% of the people that have submitted, well, roughly 75%. I didn't do the full math here, but we have an overwhelming majority of the people just prefer to buy a complete bike and then upgrade it as they go. And we're not talking like take everything off as soon as they get the bike, but buy a complete bike and then they upgrade it as to whatever they want in time. Yeah. And then the rest of the people said they like to do full on from scratch builds. Like they pick the frame, do everything else. So we're going to go through because we build, we, you and I have, we're known for having wonderful bikes that are like dream build bikes, I guess. My bikes usually have names and not just like I'm going to call her Phyllis. Yeah. (laughs) Their (laughs) project. Yeah. This. So they're pretty intense. So yeah. So our bikes usually end up being project like just dream builds. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to get in how we do that, how we break it down, how we do it in a cost effective manner and how we make sure that when I say cost effective, I'm not just talking about saving costs and I'm also talking about performance and balancing that as well. Yes, of course. So we'll get into the whole thing. But first, Stephen, when you go to build a bike, do you buy a bike that's complete? Do you build a bike from scratch? Or do you buy a bike that's complete, sell off the parts instantly, and then start building from scratch? Depends on the situation. Okay. Uh, it depends on what the base build kits I'm working with, how they are starting out. Okay. If I can live with the wheels or live with parts of the drivetrain or I like the dropper or whatever, if there's a certain aspect to it that I'm like, look, I can, some of these parts that are on this stock build, I'm going to use anyway. Yes. But I'm going to ditch other ones and sell them. Yes. And the, that's something to consider when you're looking at buying that new bike. So consider this your guide to building a new bike, new bike, but certain brands when they buy, when they're looking at specking their bikes that year and they're talking to the component manufacturers, those component manufacturers might give them a steal of a deal on a year old, but higher spec set of components or something like that. And a certain model, even though it may be a lower end or a higher end or something like that, but you'll find that kind of like a gem, like it'll have, Oh, it's actually specced with a year old, but really high quality fork or shock or wheel set or something like that. Yeah. Look into those details yes, and see if maybe it is salvageable, like you said, like yeah. you can live with it. Yeah. And, and so my big thing is if I look um, look at Yeti, like just uh, last year when I ordered my 2016 SB6. Yes. Or I'm sorry, SB55. Yeah. I ordered the, the complete X01 build. They put an X1 multi-piece cassette on. It's not the X-Dome, you know, like the, the, the X01 piece, or X, yeah. X1 was. Yeah. So I knew I was going to replace that right away. Yeah. I knew I was going to replace the basic 1130 chain, the PC 1130 chain. Right. But it had an X01 derailleur, X01 shifter. Nice. And it, and it had good parts on that front. Mm-hmm. And it also had good DT Swiss wheels. Nice. And at that point, they were still coming with the reverb dropper post. Which is a sweet post. And it came with the 6C bars. Really nice bars. So it came yeah, with a lot of strong. the parts that I wanted. Mm-hmm. 
So I ordered the complete bike because you can never beat the price of a package. Correct. OEM, like the way that they buy parts, it's so much cheaper than even I could at wholesale cost build a bike for. Correct. So that's the way that I usually do it. Yeah. So then you buy a complete bike usually, and then you just take off the parts that you really can't live with at that time and sell them and replace them with what I want and sell them instantly before you ride the bike. Yeah. The guide RSC brakes. Never even got mounted. Yep. XTR 9020s were put on as I was building the bike. Yep. And you're a Shimano guy. Yes. I'm an avid, or I'm a not avid, well, I guess technically an avid, but I'm- You're an avid SRAM guy? I'm a SRAM guy. And we're going to put our differences aside and not talk about that right now because we don't want to cause a divorce. Of course. That could be bad. Um, But uh, the, the one key thing about this is you do not ride the bike with the components that you don't want. No. You leave them off. You sell them as new takeoffs. Exactly right. And the reason that you want to do that is because you are going to lose a whole lot of value on those parts if you go to sell them. The moment that it has any use. Any use. Any at all. So like if it's like ridden once, instantly you've dropped in value. Yeah. So you now want this to say new takeoff, never used, never installed, yeah. that type of a thing. So granted, you're not going to get retail for it, but that's right. fine. You just replace it with the parts you want, sell it immediately. Sure, the upfront cost ends up being a little bit more. And but you have to deal with having a new bike that you can't ride for a bit, yeah. but patience. Unless you plan ahead. Yes. Which is all part of the process. Yeah. So that's typically how I do it. But with that cool. said, this time I have the NV wheel set from... My last 5.5. Five. Nice. They are barely used and have like 300 miles on them. So we're going to rip all the graphics off and we're going to custom do another package, which right. I'll, we'll get into later. Um, and I had my DHX2 rear shock. So, and that's something that, so the wheels is something that's pretty common for a lot of people. Yeah. And I would honestly recommend it because it gives you some flexibility with a bike you can buy. Yeah. Buy a set of wheels that are really nice. And keep those things yeah. and keep them for a while, plan on it. So then you can get a bike that might be specced with a high-end drivetrain but crappy wheels, and then as a result is going to be cheaper. Yeah. Knowing that you have good wheels to put on there, that's awesome. Yeah. You have more flexibility with the bike that you end up buying so you can save more cost. Yeah. So bottom line is that where I stand right now with the parts that I still have and with the spec as it is on the new Yeti 5.5, the Turk series, I didn't want any of the complete builds. So I just ordered a frame set. That switches the so perfect. Yeah. You're going to start from scratch. You'll be able to build it up. Um, one thing that I wanted to get into is something that I, I don't know if you do this, Stephen, but I build spreadsheets for every one of my builds. I have a really nice spreadsheet for custom builds. Sweet. And it even has a picture of a bike on it with arrows <laughs> pointing to the specific portion Whoa. of the bike with, oh, and it's that's it's, next level. It's all formulaed out. I have no part pictures. Numbers. Yeah, it's good. And I don't. Wow, that's next. I need to get it's a hold good. of that one if you have part numbers in there. Yeah. So I don't have. Um, although I take that back, I do have. I do actually have a column for part numbers for these things. So then I can keep track of it. Yeah. And and manage it that way. The things that so when I build a spreadsheet, basically what I do for a new bike is I build a spreadsheet that documents every component of that bike. Yeah. That it comes with. Okay. And I buy buy a complete bike. Okay. And then what I do is I duplicate that spread that sheet within the spreadsheet, and then I start to customize it. Okay. And something that I do when I break this down is I have cost per gram on each one of these parts. I don't get that far. So that's pretty nerdy, and it's very weight weenie-ish, right? Of course. But the reason that I do that is because it usually helps me in those tipping points between deciding between a higher-end thing or something else. Because then I look at it and I go, okay, 
I value aesthetics. I value performance in terms of like strength and if it will help my bike perform better that way. And then I look at weight and then cost. Yeah. Right. And I try to balance all of those. And if I can look at cost per gram there on that, and I can say, look, this thing is going to cost me, you know, this much more per gram and I'm really only going to be saving this much weight, totally not worth it, right? Like the upgrade from, like, you did last year with your ASR. You did an X01 cassette versus an XX1 cassette because the cost was more expensive. They weighed virtually the same. Yep. And the only benefit of the XX1 is the black part fades or gets worn off as you use it on right. the X01. So exactly. aesthetically, that's the only downside. Yeah. And in the beginning though, when it's fresh, it's it black, looks way better. Therefore it's better. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good example of that. So I break that down and then I have, um, everything to keep it straight. I have like product description. I have all those things and I just copy them over so then I can see it. it's very easily laid out. Yeah. So that's how I build out the stock bike and I even do cost per gram on the stock bike. And if you're wondering how much something weighs, it's super easy. Yeah. Almost every bike shop site or like online site that you see, or if you go to your bike shop, you might even be able to talk to the guys and they can look at things in the catalog and they can tell you. Yeah. Um, but probably don't bog somebody down unless they're weird like Steven and I with this. But uh, you can go through and you can lay that out. And then I usually lay out three scenarios from there, two to three scenarios. I have dream build sheet. I have practical build sheet. And then I might have a budget build sheet, depending on what I'm building up with the bike. And then what I do is I go through that, I compare all of that, then I have in the end a cost that I'll be doing and everything else, uh, and then I can weigh out which one is better. I also factor into the cost into these things, I factor into how much I can sell X part, whatever that part is, and then I bring that into the cost, and that helps out. And if you're looking at how much something can sell for, go to eBay, look at sold listings, things that have sold and then look up those parts. And if you do that, you'll be able to understand how much you can get for that bike or that part roughly. Now for me, I don't do the three scenario. It Mm -hmm. gets a little bit hectic doing that. Yeah. I just pick parts that I want and I'm like, okay, if that's too expensive, I get the next step down or I look for something else. So you don't have to get so in depth as you were doing and do the three scenario, but I see your point in doing that. Right. Yeah. It helps you know the options. Yeah. People kind of know their, you know, what they're going to really be spending. Mm -hmm or what they can spend. So, right. Exactly. Um, so that's the spreadsheet side of things. And it really does help to keep track of things. Also when parts come in, then you can make sure that they're right and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, really does help. Um, and I guess I I don't know how to cover the aesthetic side of things because for us, it's extremely important when we build bikes, we start with an actual like picture in our minds or very much literal picture of what the bike will look like. Right. In your case, Stephen, you actually have a picture of a mountain yeah. like view. Wet. That's all the detail I want you to give. Okay. I'm going to yeah. stay there. There is a picture in my iPhone, and we are going to channel that image into the entire theme of the bike. Huh. We're going to keep it a secret then. It's going to be Project Aurora. And Project that's Aurora. All I'm tell you. <laughs> it's going to be quite, in- that's quite the name. Yeah. So um, we start with a look in mind. Yes. And then I want to cover a few things when you're building a bike. Fair enough. There's a tendency that drives me nuts with bikes. Okay. okay. And people usually don't realize how ridiculous it is until they actually see it once it's built. And they may not even know because they may have bad taste. Okay. If your bike is, let's just say, a black frame with red accents in some way, red logo, something like that, that does not mean you need to get red hubs, red pedals, red saddle, red grips, 
red cables, red ferrules, red spoke nipples, red anything else. Don't do it. Okay. Um, that's always makes your bike look really cheap and Walmart-ish. Very much. Um, in fact, I remember even I, I saw uh, somebody who painted their fork to match the color that they needed, and it ended up looking really bad. Yeah. There are certain things that really, when you look at your bike and you're looking at the colors that you want to put onto that bike, try to focus on, and I know this is getting just absolutely persnickety. but Very roadie of you, but I'm agreeing with you on this part. Yeah. When you look at the bike, look at the part of the bike that you want to call attention to most. And instead of saying you want to make that be a pop bright color, instead, let the rest of the bike serve as a calm backdrop for that. So what I mean by that is keep things consistent. So in my case, on my bike, I have a I have a frame, that ASRC frame has really cool curves to it, really good lines, and it's turquoise. So for the rest of my bike, I didn't want to bring in any turquoise. I just wanted to keep it black. So then that way, when you looked at that bike, you went, ooh, look at that frame. Yes. Now, if you have a bike where that's not really the story and your frame is just really kind of basic, but you want to call attention to the rest of the components, then maybe you don't go with something like rock shock stuff. Maybe you go with Kashima coated fork shock, and then you also go with the new Fox dropper post that has Kashima on there too. And it would make your like bike look really good. Yeah. Might have some other small gold accents on there, but don't go overboard with the accents. Don't match your grips with things. You don't have to worry about that stuff. It'll be okay. Just go with some black grips, go with something that's just kind of subtle. And just as another example, like you did with your ASR, my 5.5 that I had previously, the focal point of that bike was the fact that I had the DHX two rear shock. It was a coil shock. It was was the only 5.5 in existence that had one. Yep. And it was an orange coil. It was the SLS coil. So it was bright orange on my anthracite gray 5.5 with turquoise accents. So the frame was pretty muted. Very muted, actually. And even the decal package that, you know, you and I did, the two-tone Jekyll and Hyde theme yep. that we did on that, that was very much a muted color palette setup. Yep. The focal point was the shock. And you only, and so you only have one thing. It was bright orange, and it was right in the center of the bike. So instead of, this is a situation where you match the grips to it, and it actually looks good. That was the only thing that I matched to it, though. Exactly. Because you didn't want to look that that spring to look like it was an afterthought and something that doesn't fit, you needed to tie that in somehow because it contrasted with everything else. Yeah. You didn't have to go overboard though. You didn't get orange hubs. You didn't go with orange stickers. You didn't go with all that stuff. Nope. Just had that. So you tied it in with the grips. Thought it was very tasteful. Thank you. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. So that covers the aesthetics thing. And if you ever have any questions on what you want to do with aesthetics, I'm happy to field those. We both are. You can just send them to us on our Instagram channel or anything else like that. Yeah. And say, what should I go with on colors here? We'll, we'll advise you. So, yep. Yeah. Uh, everyone's probably just so pissed off at how persnickety that is. Let's move into (laughs) something really quick on geometry. That's something that is kind of like a first things first with the bike. Of course. So, uh, when you're deciding which bike you want and everything else, you can do yourself a lot of good by looking at the Bible of bike tests and you can understand what that geometry of the frame, in other words, what the angles of the frame behave like on the trail. Really good idea to do. Um, but when you're matching the geometry to give you a similar feel to the bike you have, this is really important right now. I'm going through a situation where I, um, I know basically what reach, in other words, the distance from we're talking bottom bracket forward on my bike, right? Yeah. Really effective reach. If we're talking about saddle to my bars about what I'll be reaching there. I know what I want that to be, what's comfortable for me on a bike, Yes. but I'm getting a different bike that's going to have a different top tube length. Mm -hmm. 
So something that's really important for you to do to help you understand which size bike you want is to look at the top tube length, the actual length or the, the effective length of your top tube. Yes. And then look at the stem length that you have and then add those two up. So then you can have a point of reference on the next bike. So for example, I'm going from an XC bike with a longer stem. So I know that I'm going to go for a shorter stem on my enduro bike. Because your top tube will be longer. Exactly. But I balance those two things out. So it actually gives me more or less the reach or just slightly less reach on the enduro bike. I thought you were a millimeter off, right? Yep. Yeah. So really darn close. So that's something that can be really helpful is just look at the current bike you're on. And if you feel like it's a good fit, or at least it can, if you feel like it's a bad fit, you have a point of reference there, but you can judge the fit of the bike based off of that. And and with that, you should probably also give the detail that you're on a medium ASR yep. and to get the effective reach that you want, you're going with a large, a large. 5.5. Which is interesting because I usually prefer a smaller chassis. Yeah, but, but you're also on the cusp of size with Yeti at 5'11". Yep. You know, you Which and I, actually, not only Yeti, almost all bikes. True. I'm like right on the edge between medium and large. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is a, a really, I think, a point that a lot of people come across and maybe overlook. You can kind of you kind of have a cheat sheet with the bike you have. You can measure that length, just add the stem and the effective reach, and then look at whatever the effective top tube length is of the next bike, and then think of how what type of if you want a long stem or a short stem, depending on what you're building. Yeah, it can help you understand. It's pretty yep. cool. So um, let's get into a couple of things really quick. Uh, first thing you want to, or when you're building up a bike, you really want to know exactly what bottom bracket and headset standards you have. Yes. And you can figure that out in most cases by just looking on the site. So every website for every bike manufacturer lists what kind of bottom bracket interface they have. Yep. And that's where you're going to start. That starts dictating what cranks you're going to be able to use. But we'll get into that as we go. Yeah. And one thing with headsets, it's it's not standardized. No, but not it's at all. a lot. It's pretty simple in a lot of ways. It is very simple. Yep. Uh, headsets used to be like something where somebody's like, ooh, I upgraded my headset. It's really fancy. These days, it's not quite like that. Not really. I yeah. mean, there there are some subtle differences. Yeah. You look at like a Cane Creek versus a Cane, or Cane Creek 40 versus a 110. Mm-hmm. You're going from a 6,000 series alloy to a 7,000 series alloy. So you actually have a stronger uh, headset cup. Right. Then you also move from a black oxide coated steel bearings, which are still precision, still yep. sealed. Really good. Going up to a stainless. Which is great. So stainless, you're just going to do. You're not going to have the rusting issues that you're that you would have otherwise. And the 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 actual waterproof sealing, both of the top cap assembly and the crown race, yeah. are different from a uh, a Cane Creek 40 to a Cane Creek 110. Right. So there are differences, but, but it's, it's not, not quite like it was no. back in the day. But I mean, you're also talking a difference between seventy dollars for a headset and one hundred and thirty. Yep. So there is a big difference in the price jump, but the materials are more expensive. Yeah, basically means that you'll need to maintain it less, and if you get the higher end one, yes. or should maybe, should should not yeah. be able to maintain it less. So, and one thing to mention: most builds I see these days, they go with Cane Creek headsets. Most are because Cane Creek has the broadest spectrum of fit because covered. they have all the SHIS standards covered all of yep. them. So that's a great way to look. I know a lot of people, you know, Chris King headsets back in the days when you didn't have the, uh, I guess you wouldn't call it like flush mounted, but basically zero stack or inset. Yeah. Yeah. So inset now your, your, 
your headset is inset into the frame. Yeah. Whereas before it used to be external. So it built stack height into exactly. your system. Now you don't even need that. It just on most right. bikes. Yeah. On, on most. most bikes. True. Let's, yeah. Most. Yeah. So that's one thing that's pretty cool about like a lot of modern mountain bikes that you'll see. They actually have it so that it's inset. Yep. And it will give you, in most cases, they'll say it's like a tapered headset from X or it's a, a they'll give you two numbers to give you the idea of the diameter that you're dealing with on yes. each one of those. Top and bottom, yeah. Top and bottom. It's actually pretty simple. It is so, very simple. And that's yep. something we can get into depth if we really need to, if people have questions. But Bottom brackets, it's a little different. You have some confusing things. Like, for example, you hear about a BB30 crank set. And that BB30 crank set is talking about the spindle diameter being 30 millimeters. Millimeters, correct? yes. But then you have something like um, you have PF92. Which is a press fit 92 millimeter width. Which you're talking about the width of the bottom bracket. You're not talking about the diameter of the, of the spindle. But then there's also BB30 bottom brackets. Yes. Then there's PF30 bottom brackets. Yes. There's, it's a mess. It is a mess. And each has their advantages and disadvantages. Yep. Um, but essentially, any of the press fits, no matter what the manufacturers tell you, it was done. It, press fits really exist to make their manufacturing process cheaper. They don't have to put in threaded cups. They don't have to do anything like that. Nope. You press the cups into the frame. It's simple and cheap for them. Yeah. Yep. And, and also, I think that press fit gets a bad name, it and does. it's not necessarily merited in every situation. No, not at all. And um, one thing, though, the, the one thing that I would recommend, if you are wondering what type of bottom bracket I should get for my bike, I would recommend a company like Praxis, a company like Wheels Manufacturing, um, Enduro Bearings. They make some good bottom brackets, too. You can look at a lot of these companies that make really precision adapters yeah. for bottom brackets, and you can it can really help out a lot. And yeah. they make like Praxis, like the threads on the bottom brackets that you can get there. They're so precision machined. It's almost like just a thing that I always want to thread because yeah. it feels so good. It's like perfectly made. Yeah. So there you can get some adapters. They can really simplify this. Yeah. And, and eliminating any of the creaking issues that you have with the standard one. But the, the thing is I've never had to use any of those. And I literally use uh, PTFE pipe dope. For okay. for like steel uh, piping for houses that are like a like the NPT threads, yeah. You just use the pipe dope from that that's Teflon infused, yep. And you literally just put a very very thin coat on the inside of the bottom bracket interface, press them in. I've never had one creak yep. ever. Teflon is key there. Teflon is key. You know, one thing that I've <clears> even <throat> done with uh, a true BB thirty bottom bracket frame, so that is just the bearings themselves are just pressed into the frame. And, and, that's, some, and those will have an aluminum insert built into the carbon frame exactly. on BB30 interface. And you know what I've done? Uh, so this is on my specialized tarmac, which they were notorious for having creaking issues, yes. which they've gotten over. But I actually take my, those bearings. And you wrap them in Teflon tape, don't you? wrap them in Teflon tape, yep. the outside. And you know what you get? Zero creaking. Yep. It's perfect. Also, red um, low, uh, low strength Loctite helps with that. And then also the PTFE pipe dope is another option for that as well. Yep. And when I talk about wrapping it, I don't talk, I don't like wrap the whole thing up like a present. I'm no. talking about just having Teflon tape being on the outer race, the outside of, the of it, so, where it interfaces with the frame. Exactly the right. Yeah. So then it doesn't make any noise. So headsets and BBs, check the website or call the manufacturer to get things straight. Yes. And then you'll want to find out, okay, that's the bottom bracket. Now, which crank should I use? And when you figure that out, that gets 
honestly, that takes care of so much of the headache that you'll have with your bike. Yeah. The only other standard I think that we should talk about here is, um, is wheel spacing. A lot of bikes are, most bikes are becoming boost if they're not boost right now. And boost just means that the back end is 148 millimeters wide. Um, prior to that, the largely adopted standard was 142 millimeter wide rear ends. Yeah. And the, usually it's referred to as like 12 by 142 because it's 12, 12 millimeter diameter axle with 142 millimeter width. And uh, boost is 12 in most cases, 12 millimeter diameter axle. Yep, but 148 millimeter yeah. width. So a little more wide, gives you wider wheels, a little bit more of a rigid steel there. Then it also allows them to design shorter chain stays. Yeah. Now, the, the caveat to boost is it's not just that extra six millimeters. Mm. Your disc mm-hmm. mount is three millimeters outboard compared to oh. a 10 by 135 and a 12 by 142. So you can't just take a boost wheel and put different end caps on it and throw it into a 12 by 142 and go. So you can't do that. Right. But what they do make, there's a couple companies, Wolf Tooth makes their new, it's called the Boostinator. Okay. And there's a couple other brands that are making it now. Yeah, I think I just saw one come out the other day. I can't remember which brand and it was. And what they are mm-hmm. is basically the 12 by 148 end caps for various hubs and then a three mil spacer for that. the uh, for the the Makes actual sense. rotor I've to seen kick that. it out the three millimeters. Gotcha. I don't like that. Yeah, I had one of them on an SB6 uh, come back, and it just had. Uh, you remember Avid brakes with their heatsink one rotor, the, yeah. the HS one rotors would have the vibration and squealing issues. Yeah, it actually started doing that with Shimano brakes because of longer bolts, more torsional flex on the six bolt oh, interface. Interesting, and so it actually caused issues. Interesting. So I don't like that. So there is some there is some weird compatibility things with going boost to non-boost and back and forth, but... Yeah. So when you buy your new bike, make sure that you check which axle standard it has. Yes. And that will help. Um, the last thing that I would talk about um, is suspension in terms of when you're talking about dealing with standards or anything else like that. Yeah. Talk to the bike manufacturer <coughs> about which... Excuse me, about which length fork you recommend. It'll probably come... St- It'll probably come specced with the same one across all, like all component all ranges, yeah. all builds. It'll be pretty simple. But sometimes you might want to put a slightly different um, length fork on that. And if you call up a, if you call up the bike manufacturing company, and you say, "Hey guys, I'd like to take this build, but I'm thinking, or this bike, but I'm thinking of putting this length fork on it." I bet they'll have some feedback for you. And the the beauty, Yeti. Drink everybody. Yeah. Uh, Yeti actually talks about that for all of their builds. This yeah. is what we designed the fork or the bike to work with as far as fork length, but you can run up to this size or down to this size. Yep. So I've, I've built up a 4.5 uh, with a 130 millimeter fork for somebody before. I've got four fives with 140 forks running around. Yeah. I've also got five C's with 160 forks running around. Right. So, so yeah. there are a lot of different, you check with them there. And then the other thing on the fork that you'll want to check is offset which is talking about how far forward the axle is in front of, if you are to just draw that line straight down from the stanchions all the way down there, how far that thing sits forward. It's actually, I think that's actually from the center from line the center of, the of, the, tube, of the steer tube to correct. the axle. Yep. So that way uh, they designed the bike to work with a specific offset. Doesn't mean that it can't work with another, but they designed the bike with a specific one. So yes. ask them which one, if you're going to replace the fork with the shock, 
ask them or make sure you you can measure the length, but just ask them what length shock eye to eye you need. And owner's manuals usually always have this for any of the boutique brands. Yep. And then you'll want to check the tune of the shock, which we touched on last time, but the compression and rebound tune, which will be like mid, mid compression tune, mid rebound or anything else like that. So you can check that. Those are the important things to check on, I guess, the, all the different standards that you're dealing yes. with there. And also seat post size, something else that you want to check on. Yeah. It's pretty standard though. You see a lot of bikes at 30.9 or 31.6 in the enduro trail range. So some with 27.2, some maybe even specialized. Yeah. Yeah. So depends on what you're going to be doing there. So that covers all of the specifics there. Um, We're going to get into drivetrain really quick and cover that. Um, Drivetrain, you don't need... So commonly it's Shimano and I know Box makes a drivetrain. Yeah. And I play with it a bit. It's pretty cool. But... Uh, Shimano and SRAM are pretty much your choices. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Uh, Shimano, if you go with their wide range cassette, you don't have to get an XD adapter. Pretty sweet. Yep. Um, but if you don't mind having an XD adapter, then you can go SRAM. Yeah. And it's no, and they honestly both perform fantastically well. They do. And you won't have to worry a whole lot. You don't have to go boost to run Eagle. No. So you can pretty much run whatever you want there. The only thing to keep in mind is if you do want to have a front derailleur, which if you do, it's kind of strange these days. You're you back get, on the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you do I want, need to run a front derailleur, I mean, check to make sure your bike even can run a front derailleur. Because a becoming, lot of bikes now you, they are don't not. even allow it. Yep. So, But other than that, what would you say in terms of, is there anything that a person would want to check off the list and checking off compatibility when they go to build one? No, uh, just, I guess the only thing would be make sure, uh, for wider range. Yeah. Um, look at E13 stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's another so option. With E13, the cassette. They're, they have 10 and 11 speed wide range. Their TRS plus mm-hmm. 11 speed is a 944 wide range, which is like 490%, which is almost Eagle, as Eagle is 500, right? Eagle's 500. And then they have their new TRS race cassette, which is 946, which is 511. Pretty gnarly. Now it's on an 11 speed. So you're going to have a little bit bigger jumps between your gears, but that also is another, it's an option it's for an people. Option. And those all work on XD drivers for the yep. hubs, but you can run them with Shimano or SRAM derailers derailers and, and shifters yeah and you want to match the derailleur to the shifter and then in most cases you can get away with mixing the other things but i have noticed that you get best performance running sram chain rings with sram chains eh. yeah no i'm running i'm run, on my cross bike specifically yeah i'm running a shimano xt 8000 1142 wide range cassette on a force one long cage derailleur you got a whole mix with drop, yeah, with the uh, with drop shifter, force one drop shifter, yeah, and a Cannondale SI uh, hologram crank with the SL spider ring. So you've got a whole mix, and I've got a Shimano Durace chain on it, and the thing runs flawlessly. It's butter. So that whole thing, it, we'll get into the Eagle, and if the Eagle needs to work better, yeah. But even at this point, I'm probably going to be running a race face crank and chain ring on my new 5.5 anyway, right unless something changes, but I'll be mixing it up and I guarantee you it's going to shift just as good. So the only thing that's important is that you have a SRAM shifter with a SRAM derailleur 
or Shimano shifter with a Shimano derailleur. And that has to do with cable pull. That's a specific, you can't go. You can't go the other way. It's not going to work. Yep, exactly right. SRAM has one-to-one. Shimano actually has a higher leverage ratio. Actually, it's all different now. We can't. (laughs) I'm not even going to get into X Horizon and (laughs) all of that. There's differences. It used to be on the 10-speed stuff, SRAM Mountain and Road would talk to each other. Yep. Then 11-speed started talking to each other. And then they they didn't. Then when 12 speed, well, obviously 12 speed doesn't count, but yeah, like my force one, um, rear derailleur, I had to go with a long cage force one derailleur. Right. I couldn't put an XX one derailleur with the force one drop shifter because it's totally different cable pull, Sheesh. which is how Shimano's always been. Shimano road to Shimano mountain has never talked. Sheesh. Yeah. It's a pain. So I think we've covered pretty much the all the details. Uh, the, I guess dropper post check to make sure that your bike has internal routing. If you buy an internal post. Yep. That's about it. I think that's it. And then um, if you're running like SRAM brakes and you want to run a Shimano shifter, or it'd really be the opposite in most cases. If people want to run Shimano brakes but they don't have a Shimano drivetrain, keep in mind that you you can get mix-match adapters yeah. to make sure that you only have one clamp on each side of your bars, but it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah. That's pretty much it. That's about it. That's a guide, more or less, on the things that you want to check off when you go to build up a bike. Yes. I feel like we just covered a lot. I think we did cover a lot. And we didn't even get into my build. No. But we should keep that as Project Aurora a secret and roll it out as it happens. We should. Yeah. Uh, last Some parts have been ordered. Ooh, already. And the frame is on the way. That's true. Uh, let's get into, uh, let's close out with our picks really quick. Um, one, or the pick that I have this week is I got some Jaybird Freedom headphones. And I do not use them on the trail. Know everybody that uses headphones on the trail. You should never use headphones on the trail. You're just becoming a danger to everybody else on the trail because you can't hear. And yeah, in fact, I had a little guy one time get very angry at me and threaten to to fight me because I was behind him calmly for about, no joke, for about two minutes on a climb behind him calmly saying, excuse me, sir, uh, would you mind if I got around you at any point? Uh, I'll just make a pass whenever it's convenient for you, but no worries. And coming up with every kind of way to say it. And I was saying it at such a ridiculous volume, but trying to sound kind, which is hard, by the way, if you're trying to yell, but also sound not angry at somebody, right? Very true. Um, I'm trying to do this, trying to do this. And then the trail gets wide enough so that I can make a pass. And at that point, I'm like, I've been behind this guy forever. He's got headphones and he's not hearing me. I'm just going to make a pass. And I did that and he fell over. I stopped to make sure he was okay, and that's when he got screaming angry and wanted to, to fight me after that. Now, when you say this little guy, was he like Gary Cooper little, or was he like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone little? He wasn't Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone little. He was, he was a grown man. But he's little. L- just less emphasis on the grown part. He's ah. a tiny little dude. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, really angry. Ah. Really angry fella. So okay. I do not use headphones on the trail, but when I'm on the trainer, I use headphones all the time. I don't like to put cans on my ears because that blocks in the heat. Yep. Instead, I like to use earbuds. <clears throat> These are the best wireless earbuds I've used so far. Okay. I know they have the X3s, which are supposedly better sound quality. I tried them out. I couldn't tell the difference. And the cool part is these Freedoms are super low profile. They stick in my ear better. They're lighter. Um, They're super cool. So that's my pick. Do you have a pick this week, Steven? I didn't really prep anything for a pick this week, but I'm going to do my little Yeti bottle (laughs) right here. Not not Yeti bicycles, Yeti coolers. So don't drink. It's the best $55 water bottle. So expensive. I've ever owned. (laughs) It's so expensive. Uh, When did I pick it up from your house after leaving it there for a month? Friday night? Yeah. 
And has it been like the happiest time, the happiest week of your life? Since yes, you got it back? because I had, didn't have it for a couple weeks. And yeah. this thing keeps ice, ice for like five days. It's pretty bro to have too. It is very bro. If like, you have a Tacoma with like <laughs> overly, or like you need like built it up like an overlander and you have like a max tracks. Yeah. And, and you might have, you might a even Tepui have tent. Yeah, Tepui tent. You'll probably have some rims that have fake beadlock bolts on there. Or like moto metal with like a star, nautical star in the center, something like that. Maybe, you know? yeah. yeah. You have those. You might have like army fatigues that you you've never really been in the army, but you have them anyway. Of course. And you're super into assault rifles. And you have a folding shovel. Yes, you have a shovel and a gas tank mounted to a rack on your bed. Okay, first of all, <laughs> shout out on Instagram, Defcon Bricks. Is that he's got a Tacoma? Yeah, <laughs> that's set up for overlanding. He's into assault rifles. And he has a Yeti. He, he's exactly what you just described, Yeti cooler, I but say. he's actually really cool. There we are. So Some of them are cool. follow him if you really like cool overlanding stuff. But anyway, no, um, yes, <laughs> you, you kind of need to be that sort of a bro to have a Yeti bottle. But they're, they're good. But they're phenomenal. They're there good. And everybody will say, oh, get RTIC. They're like half the cost, but they're not a Yeti. That's true. You can actually look on YouTube where somebody has cut them in half to compare between the two, and the RTIC did not perform as well. No. So, um, anyways, that was really nerdy. We probably scared some people off this week with that episode. We might have. We might have. But hopefully uh, some of you found it helpful in terms of the boxes to check. Use a spreadsheet. Don't be afraid to buy a bike that's already built up, and then you can just swap out the parts that you don't want, and it could help you save some costs. Yep. So hopefully that gives you all the info that you guys need on how to build a bike properly. And we're not always going to be this nerdy. You no. guys should know that by now. Next week will be decidedly less nerdy. We'll fart a bunch. And <laughs> I don't know about that. No, we'll make fart <laughs> jokes. How about that? Well, thanks for joining us. You can check us out, mtbpodcast.com. Share the podcast from there, please. Uh, let other people know about it. It's growing fast. Let's make it grow even faster. Um, yeah, and it's good stuff. Leave us a review. Yes. Submit your questions at mtbpodcast.com. That covers it. I think that's it. We'll see you all next week. Good day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.